This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 12, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The PR firm founded by Rick Berman operates a little differently. Often, instead of seeking clients, the firm seeks issues around which to build a campaign and then seek clients. To hear Berman tell it, it's easier to fight before a new liberty-killing law goes into effect. We spoke in April. Your company is fairly unique. Um, it's particularly sarcastic in, in uh, taking on causes that, at least in Washington, D.C., often are quite con- are considered to be unfavorable. So how do you decide whether or not you're going to take on an issue or a client? Well, it's fairly easy. Um, I have a lot of people who believe that we do have an ability to manage public opinion. So we start out with a, a group of fans, if you will, and, um, and that's been built over time. And then I'll see an issue which I think has um, plenty of hype and hyperbole built into it and not a lot of science. It could be in the energy field. It could be in the food field. It could be in the labor field. And I'll see what the proponents are proposing, and I see it as an extreme overreach. I see it as... Uh, people throwing the baby out with the bathwater or some other metaphor you can think of. And I will go to potential funders and say, listen, this is wrong. Um, I'm offended by it. If you know as much about it as I do, you'll be offended by it. And we can actually put the brakes on this by getting public opinion on our side and getting the public to understand that they're being led down the wrong path, they're being given junk science, they're being given poor economics that justify these crazy outcomes. And if you'll support me, I'll create a public opinion environment that's counter to the ones that these people are trying to trying to generate. And you can generally find people who will support that if they believe you're credible and if they believe that you have a path forward that makes sense. You said that you approach funders. So in many cases, you're choosing the issue and saying this is, this is something that uh, needs to have the, opinion, the public opinion uh, uh, sort of fully informed on a subject? Yeah. That's not to say that people haven't come to me with ideas and say, you know, could you help us with this or that? And if I feel that, uh, number one, I can if number two, I find it an attractive issue, if number three, I think it's important enough to crowd out some of the other work that we're presently doing because there's, you know, we only have so much bandwidth, um, then I'll consider that as well, although I've rejected lots of stuff that's come in over the transom that I just thought was um, just not particularly interesting to me. I, it, we don't have a lack of business, and so I don't have to take everything that someone comes to me with, but the stuff that I like the best is um, are the issues that we, in fact, have discovered and are lurking under the radar of most people. And what we see is um, a total hijacking of public policy or of people's freedoms. And that's where I like to get engaged, and that's where I go out and I look for funding rather than having people come to me with an offer of work that they're interested in rather than I'm interested in. Largely speaking, that's, that's your business model then. Yeah, yeah, and it's, very, and it's very different from most public relations firms who do work for people when they're in a crisis situation. Um, I don't like to do um, crisis communications. I like to do crisis prevention. 
And quite frankly, there aren't a lot of people who think long-term enough. But there are those people out there. And if you find the issue and you say, look, there's, you see that bright light down the tracks? That really is a train coming. And we can do something about it now. But when the train is almost running over your foot, there's not going to be a whole lot you can do about it. And if you're going to call me then, I might or might not be able to help you. But I guarantee you that it will not be as an effective uh, response on our part as if we were to engage now. So if you're uh, trying to identify an issue that, if not dealt with uh, from the perspective of public opinion, where do you look? Well, you know, um, as Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot just by looking. And so we're constantly scanning the environment. We constantly see things popping up. Um, the regulatory uh, universe has got plenty of plenty of stuff to look at. I tend to look, as I said earlier, in the labor area, in the environment, energy area, and in the food area. And <clears throat> there's nothing magical about those three other than to say that if you look at all the people who are on what I'll call the other side, the pro-regulation side, you'll find that these NGO groups from Greenpeace to the labor unions to um, Planned Parenthood, I mean, every, Everybody who's out there that's got an issue, um, they tend to fall into one of those three categories. They tend to be trying to control people's choices uh, in any of those areas. In fact, Planned Parenthood might not be a real good example, although I haven't gotten involved in that debate. Um, so from my standpoint, um, if you watch what the labor unions are up to, you can find issues that you're thinking, wow, this is really wild that what they're trying to do. They're trying to take away the rights of people to make their own decisions on the job. If you look at the energy area, obviously, as soon as the anti-fracking stuff started to surface, you could see that people were trying to do away with fossil fuels because it didn't support their, their alternative energy uh, agendas. And so you can get to people. Now, on the other hand, you can get behind the curve because there would be a group, for instance, out in California that actually did successfully pass a ballot initiative called Prop 65. And anybody listening to this uh, podcast will know what Prop 65 is if you've lived in California. In fact, if you've ever gotten on an airplane in California, at the end of the jetway, there's a sign just before you get on the plane. And the sign basically says you're about to enter a space that has chemicals that can cause birth defects or cause cancer. So we see this uh, all the time on products throughout the United States, which is known to the state of California to cause X, Y, Z. Right. And the reason that they have it on jetways as you're getting you know, into your seat on the, on the airplane um, is because on the airplane they serve uh, beer, wine, and spirits. And so obviously taken to its logical conclusion, if you drink enough beer, wine, or spirits, it will cause birth defects fetal alcohol syndrome. So there's a sign there that you're about to enter a space that can cause, cause you cancer or, or, you know, birth defects. Now, that to me is an overreach. Um, Prop 65 requires that any item that has lead be, be so labeled. Um, obviously, if you ingest uh, lead, it's not a healthful uh, habit. On the other hand, why would a fishing reel have a warning on there a Prop 65 warning that it's causing birth defects or cancer. Well, the answer is that there's lead in the fishing reel, and if you were to lick it enough times or possibly eat the fishing reel, you would be ingesting lead. Now, that's the kind of stuff that people need to do something about. Unfortunately, Prop 65 is in place, and if you try to do away with it, 
people will say, well, you're trying to do away with warnings about cancer and about birth defects. And so now you're into a very big fight. The fight should have taken place with an enormous amount of money before Prop 65 passed. You can, you can go to um, the current Prop 65 language, and now they're going to require, and I, I'm not making this up, they're going to require that certain vegetables have these warnings on them because there's lead in the ground as a naturally occurring um, element, and vegetables like carrots will pick up some of the lead. And so if you're eating carrots, there's going to be a warning. Now, this is the insanity that we deal with. And as I try to tell people, if you're not going to get ahead of this, then you're going to chase it. And if you're chasing it, you're playing defense. And it's hard to score on defense. You've uh, sort of you've never shied away from uh, taking a certain tone in a lot of the the especially the video work that uh, Berman has put out, and uh, I, I like a lot of it. Uh, but I, I think the the broader point that you're making is that you know there's a lot of institutional inertia. And when things are in place, they're in place. And uh, it's hard to do anything about it at that point. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the sarcasm is easy. You know, uh, I tell people I only hire intelligent people, but they also have to be clever. And when you get into the clever zone, you get people who understand sarcasm. So we do use a lot of sarcasm. Um, sarcasm is the flip side of plain vanilla. And nobody pays attention to plain vanilla messages. They just wash over you. I mean, if you pick up a, an issue of Time magazine and you just flip through the pages, there's lots of advertisements in there. And for most part, people will never stop and read the ad. If you see our ad and one of our ads in Time magazine, you will stop and you will read it because there's going to be a graphic that kind of grabs you. And oftentimes, that's the, the sarcasm that works. You know, we have, if you go to one of our websites called um, employeerightsact.com, You'll see advertising there, and you'll see an ad with people sitting on a toilet in public. And I'm not going to suggest to you, you know, what it's all about right here. But nobody puts out an ad showing a bunch of guys sitting on toilets in the middle of the street. Um, but if you see that ad, you're compelled to watch it to see where it ends. And then there's, there's actually some science behind this. There's a trigger. And the trigger is this. The next time you sit on a toilet, you're going to think about that ad, and you're going to think about what was the message in that ad. Now, we have no problem doing something like that. You would not find a typical corporation doing it, and you certainly won't find a corporation trade association doing it. So that's where, that's where we come in uh, with edgy messages that are backed by science, that are backed by economics, but are delivered in a way that people will pay attention to. What kind of frustration do you face if you go to uh, certain industry folks and try to convince them, this is important. You need to be involved in this fight. You don't want to, as you said, play defense on it. It seems to me that a lot of uh, folks who work in uh, big industries will say, oh, well, it won't be that bad. We can cut a deal. Or we're big enough, frankly, to comply with the regulations and our, our competitors aren't. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know, there's, there, are, there are companies who say, well, it'll be costly, but we'll be the last one standing. Um, that's a, that's a business argument that I can't confront or do anything about. Um, I can't confront effectively. Uh, it's a strategy to put your, put your competitors out of business. Um, uh, I mean, certain, certain gun manufacturers have effectively played that game. Some major tobacco producers have effectively played that game, which is, we're, you know, we're big. We can afford to comply. So we'll, yeah. we're no, we have no problem with it particularly. 
Yeah, no. I, listen, uh, if we had hours, I could fill your uh, your story, your uh, your need for stories here with a lot of anecdotal information. Uh, I've seen a lot of it. Uh, it goes on every day with me. Usually, the people who don't make that decision <clears throat> are people who have their heads screwed on straight, who understand that there are larger issues involved, personal freedoms, commercial freedom for that matter, free speech issues, um, <clears throat> and these are the people I like to do business with. Uh, one thing is certain, um, not everybody in the business community will support what I do, nor will they um, tell you that it's the right strategy. They will suggest that you can get along by going along. You can they will suggest that compromise isn't a bad word. Um, unfortunately, these are people who are risk adverse. They're generally more concerned about the longevity of their own personal employment than anything else. And look, that's, <clears throat> that's a value that I think probably works for them, and I can't fault them for it just because they're not as ideological, perhaps, as I might be. But at the end of the day, the world is not made up only of those people, and I work with the other guys. What does moving the needle look like for Berman? <clears throat> well... It depends upon the issue. Now, if you tell me that the public believes X and I say I can get them to believe Y, the first thing I'm going to look at is just how deep-seated the X point of view is. And is it based on information that is false and easily proven? Um, I can move the needle pretty fast. Um, we moved the needle in New Jersey in two months on the minimum wage um, by um, 20, let me see, by 16 points. Um, yes, by 16 points over a one-month, well, basically a six-month period. So how do you move the public against the minimum wage by 16 points in one month? Very difficult. But we, um, we were able to do it um, through some creative advertising, some creative messaging, and quite frankly, with some substantial amount of money. Um, I've moved people... Uh, to different points of view over time just by changing the language. You know, I, I often told Monsanto, I'll just use one company's um, uh, position here, I often told Monsanto that they made a very big mistake when they called genetically modified um, GMOs, when they called them genetically modified organisms, um, exactly that. Why would, you call, why would you tell people it's safe to eat genetically modified organisms? Um, that's not the first thing that you think of when you get out of bed in the morning, that I want some genetically modified organisms with my Cheerios. On the other, on the other hand, if they had just called these new foods that they were, um, that they were creating with, with science, if you called them genetically modified foods, um, or more importantly, genetically improved foods, so if you called them GIFs, genetically improved foods rather than GMOs, you immediately would have had a different reaction on the, on the part of the public. And so um, I think you could, you could have moved the needle enormously. Uh, it wouldn't have gone so far south if you had just used different language. So in, in some cases, the, the challenge that, uh, that you have is dealing with people who have uh, insidery uh, jargon within their industry or use, like in the case of Monsanto, words that uh, bring to mind science in, in their way of thinking, but to the public means something sort of alien and strange. Right. And, it, and it's because the people who are developing these products are talking to themselves. They're coming out of a science lab. 
And as I once said to a group of scientists who worked for this company, I said, and it was about a certain product, I said, and, and the product had one of these weird names, and they were selling it to the public that way. And I said, why do you call it that? And they said, because that's what it is. And so, obviously, the marketing department had never really caught up with the science uh, department, the R&D department. And if they had, they would have had a different product, a uh, different product name, which would have essentially meant a different product for the, uh, for the public. But, but that's a branding and that's a marketing approach. Um, it's just that when I get, when I get called in um, or if I, you know, basically inject myself into these conversations, I'm looking at that as a failing. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is, well, how do we change the conversation? If you come into our conference room, um, on the wall, there's a, there's a sign and it says, Berman and Company, changing the debate. Now, if you're a lobbyist in this town, your real goal is to change the vote. I say, I'm going upstream and I'm going to change the debate. Because if the debate is going against you, I can guarantee the vote will go against you. So if I can change the debate, maybe the vote on whatever we're talking about here will come down in a more favorable way. Speaking of marketing and changing the debate and uh, electoral politics, which we haven't been discussing, but you've watched the, I assume, the uh, political wrangling that's been going on for the past uh, year or so. Any thoughts? <clears throat> well, um, that's such an open question. Well, let me let me specify. <laughs> let me let me make it specific for you. For example, Jeb Bush, uh, when he was running for president, all of his signs just said Jeb on them, and right. for the obvious reason that the word the name Bush uh, became toxic at a, at a certain point. So, it, from your perspective, as somebody who is really concerned about uh, making sure that good ideas get their best presentation and bad ideas are exposed for what they are. What have you What have you witnessed that stuck with you? Well, you know, starting with the Jeb Bush campaign, you know, the problem there um, was not the sign. The problem was, and I think anybody who watched the debates would agree with this, that Jeb Bush became a different candidate over time. But in the early stages. Um, he was too passive. He was um, he was not engaged in a fight that was going on, and he didn't even recognize it was a fight. Um, and you know the old rule is you never bring a knife to a gunfight. And you know Donald Trump was prepared to, to have a gunfight, and he wanted to pick up all the people who were unhappy with previous insiders. And Je Jeb Bush was an insider. You know, at the end of the day, Jeb Bush suffered from um, from being an establishment candidate in a, in an era where. Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street and all those other frustrations that were evidenced through those groups were becoming preeminent. And, um, and Jeb Bush was trying to hang on to some old visions, and he never really gave people a new vision. So that was more than just a name. That, that was an approach. Um, I, think, I think today, um, you know, take, take a look at the Scott Walker situation. Scott Walker was known if he was known for anything among Republicans, was slapping down the unions. Um, that was the fight was about on his recall, on his reelection. It was always about the unions and what he had done. And he was given a lot of credit by the Republicans for doing it. <clears throat> what Scott Walker didn't do is he never made a union reform agenda part of his national agenda. He never spoke about it. It was at the last minute he had a, he had a, a speech in Las Vegas where he introduced his plan for what he was going to do to reform labor law in this country, and that was, about, that was less than a week before he pulled out. 
So there was a messaging opportunity that was missed because he was known for that. Why would you not use, like Donald Trump tries to use the fact that he's a smart businessman. And he, whether he is or he isn't, that's what he plays on and that's what he tells people. Well, Scott Walker could have told people, I will reform labor laws and I will give people back to them their rights on the job, which have been hijacked by organized labor and the labor leadership. He never mentioned it. So he was trying to establish a new person and never used the foundation that he had going for him. <clears throat> you can find those kinds of issues um, in each campaign where people made a mistake by not actually using their greatest asset or trying to mimic somebody else's asset, which isn't theirs. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to do an autopsy on every one sure, of those sure. campaigns. But, but Donald Trump... And uh, to a similar extent, Bernie Sanders have been pretty effective at creating insurgent campaigns that have altered the debate within those parties and, and frankly, with very similar rhetoric. Yeah. Well, you're right. And, you know, if you go back to the old, um, the old line that life is timing, um, as I said earlier, Bernie, Bernie Sanders has inherited um, the four – you remember four years ago was Occupy Wall Street. Bernie Sanders has basically inherited that movement. Um, if that movement hadn't started, I'm not certain that Bernie Stan Sanders could have ignited it. But he rode that wave. He is riding that wave. Um, Donald Trump, uh, remember the Tea Party started about, um, oh, about eight years ago. And Donald Trump has basically hijacked that, that frustration. And that was the frustration with Washington. So both of them had a ready audience that you would not normally think of in normal years um, that they could play to and build off of. And I think that the media uh, and the public were blindsided by it. And I think the media and the public, the, the larger media and the larger public basically thought, these are so anomalous campaigns, they're just going to self-destruct. They're going to blow up. I think everybody's been surprised at how they've kept it going. And that just shows that there's more passion around some of that frustration that most people would have recognized. You know, other people, when they do Monday morning quarterback, say, well, they should have stopped Trump early on. They should have attacked Trump early on. And, of course, early on, nobody was attacking Trump because Trump was using these schoolyard bully tactics and going after people. You know, uh, part of my childhood was growing up in Queens, not very far from, from where Donald Trump grew up in Queens. I know who Donald Trump is. And viscerally, I know who Donald Trump is. Um, he is some of the guys that I knew when I was growing up just with another 60 years thrown on top of it. Um, but he's still the same guy. He's still operating the way we all operated as kids back then. And we were, you know, everybody was in everybody else's face and everybody was, you know, yelling at each other. We even had a, a there was a term called ranking out where you would yell at each other back and forth. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the ultimate rank out was so's your mother. You know, it's one of those kind of vacuous, silly things that kids do. That's who Donald Trump is. And that nobody thought that that would ever connect with people. But obviously it has because people are that angry and, and quite frankly, becoming that childish about their view of politics. How much of his appeal and, again, to a lesser extent, Bernie Sanders is just showmanship? It's bumper sticker. It's, it's policy by bumper sticker. I mean, I, I am not uh, – some of, some of your listeners may be fans of Sarah Palin. Um, I was not a fan of Sarah Palin. I thought she was vacuous. I didn't think she had anything to say. I, I think Donald Trump is Sarah Palin with money. 
Um, I, I don't think he's any better than she was. And if you scratch the surface, you know, when, when Donald Trump says that he's going to do something with a $19 trillion debt within eight years by cutting taxes and basically simply cutting new trade deals with China, it doesn't hold up in any economic environment. It doesn't hold up in, in the terms of any good, solid economic wisdom. And he says this stuff and he gets away with it because, look, most people don't know how big a $19 trillion debt is. And so they just think, well, this guy must know more than I do. He's a businessman. You know, just to give you an example, um, if I ask people, and I used to do, I did a campaign once. You'd ask some of these campaigns. I did a campaign once on the debt when the debt was $12 trillion, And some people gave me some resources and they said, can you convince the country that $12 trillion debt is a big deal? And I said, here's our first problem. And it goes back to something I said earlier. Um, a trillion dollars is a number nobody understands. And 12 wasn't a big number. So I went back to my guys and I said, look, you're trying to get people upset over a, the number 12 connected to something they don't understand. No, nothing here says angst. Nothing here says anxiety. So until you convince people that trillion's a big number, they don't care. So now, w one of the things I, I did is I understood that people would certainly understand the, a million. They understand a million, maybe not a trillion. Um, and they understand time. So we had ads, and we put out this example. We said, a million seconds is going to elapse within 12 days. A trillion seconds will elapse over 34,000 years. For the first time, when you say that to people or they read that, they go, wow, I had no idea a trillion was so big. Only then, when people understand the extent of the problem, can you talk to them about a solution. If you're not going to get them under, to, under, to the first part, they're never going to go for the second part. When people say that everybody in society owes $50,000 to pay off the national debt, it's a vacuous statement unless you believe that someone's coming to your house with a bill for $50,000. And if you don't, then it's no longer a threat, and therefore it's no longer something to worry about. You've got other things to worry about. So all of this goes back. I mean, it's a, I'm going a little far afield from your conversation about Trump, but Trump will put out these crazy ideas. And um, I'm not suggesting that all the other candidates are that much better, but they are better. Um, they're, not, they're not being, um, none of them are being held to a, a standard of, uh, you know, uh, the Wharton School of Business. But they're being um, held to the standard of a normal political promise. Normal, yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> whatever you know, that means. So some people get three Pinocchios, or some people get four or five. But you know, Donald Trump—they ought to have another category for for the lies that he tells. Which I, sometimes I wonder if he even knows that he's lying. I think he gets carried away with his own rhetoric, and I and I sometimes I think he believes that he can do what he says he can do because he just feels that powerful. But you know, there's the Congress, there's the courts, and then there's. Donald Trump, who believes that none of this stuff matters. Um, I'm very disappointed that the public, I'm not disappointed in Donald Trump, I'm disappointed that the public doesn't quite understand this. Rick Berman is founder of Berman & Company. This month marks 10 years of the Cato Daily Podcast. Subscribe and share at cato.org slash podcast.